Hello, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. In this case, you're about to listen to the lecture that our senior fellow, Professor Catherine Pakalak, gave at the University Catholic Center on September 10, 2021. The lecture, titled Soulmates and Other Myths About the Family in America, reviewed a number of the puzzles, paradoxes, and misconceptions about the family in America, including the myth of soulmate marriage, the one of good divorce, as if there was such a thing, and the myth that our deepest divisions are political. The speaker mentioned some of the most important contributions to social science of the family and placed these findings in light of the Catholic faith. I'm sure that you will want to take note of some of the books and authors she mentions, but do not worry because some of those are linked to this episode too. And finally, before you enjoy this talk, a few words about Dr. Pakalak. Well, besides being a senior fellow of the AI, Professor Pakalak joined the faculty at the Bush School uh, of Catholic University of America in the summer of 2016 and is the founder of the Social Research Academic Area, where she is an assistant professor of social research and economic thought. Her primary areas of research include economics of education and religion, family studies and demography, Catholic social thought, and political economy. Dr. Pakalok is also the happy mother of eight children. Enjoy. Thank you so much for this gracious introduction. Um, the, if any of you who happen to ever speak, you know that's the worst two minutes of the talk for the speaker, <laughs> to sit there and listen to this long thing, and you think this should just be shortened incredibly. Um, but I want to also say it's a real, besides it being a great privilege to be at the um, University of Texas with you and visiting at the Austin Institute, um, this may be the first time I've given a talk in a chapel with our Lord present. And so I was sitting there thinking that, um, that the bio could be shortened, right? Like, who am I? I'm a daughter of, of the King. I'm, I'm, I'm a daughter of Jesus Christ. So this is, um, this is a real privilege. I, I very much, I mean, um, I, I, I encourage you and hope that you will find reason to meditate and reflect and converse with our Lord. And if anything I say causes you to, to, to pray and stop listening to me, <laughs> that would be great. So, um, so with that, I will sort of begin. Um, you, you can tell from my research topics that I'm, I don't like to shy away from sort of controversial or thorny subjects. Um, that's something I've been at for a long time. In fact, um, I now like to say that I started out in research in uh, a topic that no one had ever heard of until a couple of years ago. I, I really did early research in viral epidemiology at the National Institutes of Health, and no one ever, no one knew what viral epidemiology was until recently, so I, I feel like I need to add and buffer my CV now. This would like look very exciting. So anyway, um, I, uh, I do love interesting, and I worked on AIDS research, so I really do love sort of uh, tackling thorny issues. So what I've done to, with, in this talk is it's a little bit of a tour through um, what I think are some of the most interesting findings of contemporary uh, social science related to the family that um, you know you may not have run into unless you took a course. Well, I guess a course taught by me, so <laughs> probably you haven't done it. But, but maybe some of you have heard of a little bit of this, but I'll, I'll sort of um, take you through that. And so I'm going to start for findings that are a little bit on the, ma the micro side, kind of how do we conceive of marriage, and then proceed to something like a macro level view of society and how does family formation 
end up interacting with the general health of society. So it's going to be a little bit of a tour, um, and that's, that's okay. Uh, can you change this slide? Um, sorry, I don't have a clicker today. Um, uh, so these are, the, these are the myths I'm gonna cover. Um, can you change it again? <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you're gonna be regretting this. There is an app for this if you wanna download the app. <laughs> oh, you're doing the parking app. All right, I apologize to the live stream people. We're making notes. Okay, we, all right, we have this textbook. So there is a philosopher by the name of uh, Wittgenstein who once remarked that if you had a mess of books on the ground, if you just pick them up off the floor and look at them, that you'd already begun to put them in order, that just picking them up was a start. Uh, if you have toddlers, you know that just picking them up is a start and we don't have to worry about putting them in order. Um, so I want to proceed that way tonight. I'm not going to give something like the final judgment on the findings that are here, uh, but I do want to pick them up off the ground, have a look at them, and consider them with you in, sort of in light of the faith and the teachings of the church. So we're not going to try to put these in order perfectly, but I do think that looking at them um, together, and this is, again, this is something that social scientists, strictly speaking, don't very often do. They don't take things from various parts of the fields and put them together, and in fact, that's that's, it's, it's one of the functions of, of this kind of engagement is actually to say, well, actually, when you start to pull the things together, you start to see some threads which are very interesting. But it's hard to find a peer-reviewed paper which does that. So um, in this uh, Catholic setting, you might ask, why should we look at social science findings at all? So I'm gonna give you two reasons that are not the right reasons, so wrong answers only, um, before we start thinking about why we ought to or why I think we ought to. The first is we are not here to look at these findings because they're somehow more true. Social science findings are not more true than other things we know like the teachings of our faith, and this is important. What we know through revelation or through um, the theological sciences, we could say, is also true, and it's arguably more true than social science findings. That has a lot to do with you know, how we measure things and this kind of thing. But it's always I always find it very, very important to stress at the outset that because we've managed to assemble certain things and numbers and graphs, it doesn't make it more true than the things we know from our faith. The other wrong reason, right, the other reason we're not here to look at social science findings is because we hope, or at least, you know, bear with me, it's not, I, I, I like to counsel in general, it's not a great reason to kind of dig through social science findings because we hope that somehow these scientific facts might convince others more easily of what is true. Social science findings and science in general aren't meant to be used as a club in the culture wars or for jousting in the public square, even if they do have a right and proper use in civil debate. And if we weren't convinced of this, it might be good for us to think about how little bearing, often, facts and findings appear to have on public discourse in general. And I don't just mean with relation to the family. So we do always have an obligation to testify to the truth, but truth doesn't always work very well as a tool of persuasion. Since reason is altered by sin, facts don't carry the same meaning without the light of faith and the life of grace. Okay, so those are the wrong answers, wrong answers only. What is the right reason um, to, uh, to pick up these findings and consider them as I propose to do? And the, the reason to do this, at least for me, is for the same reason we might stop and examine a flower or look at a mount, the mountains, appreciate the beauty of creation, that we might give glory to God. And that might sound crazy. No one does this, right? We say, like, I, I went into social science because I just 
really love to contemplate how interesting people are. God made them, and they're beautiful like mountains. But I actually think that is the reason to begin as a social scientist. The complexity of human life and the realities that arise from human dramas are no less objects of com contemplation, I think, than sparrows and mountain ranges. Um, next one. <laughs> OK. It's, some of my slides, might, the formatting might have changed. There is an orientation towards nature, including human nature. Right? We are part of nature, something that um, Pope Benedict, Emer Benedict Emeritus, Pope Benedict, like to remind us, we are part of nature. And so this orientation towards nature, we want to get it right in the social sciences. And this begins with a contemplation of the order of things in the mind of God, which is what Thomas Aquinas, how he defined the natural law, the order of things in the mind of God. And this is what the social scientists, I think, should be up to, is kind of listening to the natural law of persons and communities. So statistical regularities in human behavior put these laws, as I would put it, into a kind of initial relief. And then when we find that these findings are combined with other modes of knowing what it is to be a person, the result is we can obtain real insight into the glory of God. So as St. Irenaeus said that the, a man fully alive is the glory of God. So let's then begin. Um, I think that that preamble at least helps you to know where I'm coming from as a social scientist. All right, um, so myth number one is the myth about soulmate marriage, and you can change it again. Thank you, okay. Um, so I guess from the sublime to the ridiculous, <laughs> gonna, we're gonna change the subject and, and um, maybe a little bit of levity. So I wanna begin this tour uh, with the story of Governor Mark Sanford. Um, Sanford was elected to lead South Carolina in 2002. I doubt very many of you were, were even thinking political thoughts in 2002. Um, he was a fiscal conservative, and he was elected to a second term in 2006. This is Mark Sanford up there. Um, and you can see by those pictures that, that I selected, um, uh, you know, he was very squeaky clean, looked great, nice looking family, um, it was pretty great. So he became famous in that second term uh, as a fiscal conservative for rejecting a portion of the federal stimulus money that was earmarked for his state in 2009. In 2010, a Democratic watchdog group named him one of the worst 11 governors in the United States, and the Libertarian Cato Institute ranked him the best governor in America. So this just, you know, this was a long time ago, but it's just, he was a real star. I mean, he was a star for fiscal conservatives and libertarians, and, you know, real enemy of, of the Democrats. So he's, everybody knew this guy was. Um, and he once stated, and this is a direct quote, it is my personal view that the largest proclamation of one's faith ought to be in how one lives one's life. Okay, so next clip. Um, so I hope some of you don't know this. So this is um, in June of 2009. Um, this rising star completely disappeared. No one could find him for, I think, about 10 days from uh, the 18th of June to the 24th of June. And so people start running stories. Where is Governor Sanders? He cannot be found. His staff can't find him. I mean, I'm telling you a true story. He disappeared and no one could find him. So his family, his staff, law enforcement officials were all searching for him. And eventually he was discovered in the Atlanta airport on a flight, an incoming flight, getting off of an incoming flight from Argentina, where it turned out it was discovered he'd been on a tryst with a woman that he later admitted to having met in 2001, right? At least one of you is shocked. It's a great story, actually. <laughs> um, and he had been dating this woman since 2008. So the press went wild. All right, so this was just a really, um, you know, all 
seriousness aside, it was a really entertaining thing to see. So you could change the slide. Um, in an emotional public interview, this picture was really probably in every newspaper in the country. Um, yeah, those of you that are quietly in the back, I mean, there are plenty of seats. Um, you can come right up close if you want. Um, in an emotional public interview, Sanford, this is, he wipes a tear from his eye. He made this tremendous um, apology. He admitted that he had hurt his wife, his children, all of his supporters, and the state of South Carolina, but that he would die, and I quote, knowing that he had met his soulmate. It was a really epic non-apology. I'm sorry, he said, but it was all worth it. All right, so you can, um, you can, so, so well, we could, yeah, so, so, we, so what's, what is this with the soulmate thing? So how does this phrase soulmate make its way into a national public statement by a US, a sitting US governor? So what is soulmate, technolo soulmate terminology? It's the popular shorthand for a mode of romantic association which the value of the association is established by feelings of emotional satisfaction, mutual attraction, the stars have aligned, feelings of personal fulfillment. Um, you probably know what this means. Soulmate is meant to capture what is experienced in falling in love or being in love. Now, being in love isn't a new thing by any means, but what is new is the wide-scale adoption of the soulmate uh, concept or the soulmate model or the feeling in love as a predominant definition or a fundamental shared conception of marriage, right? So in Governor Sanford's case, of course, his soulmate was, just happened to not be the person he was married to. <laughs> but in fact, um, this is the first myth, that marriage is fundamentally a romantic institution that we can shape to match personal tastes and preferences. While it's easy to distance ourselves from such a phrasing, uh, most of us do buy into the soulmate ideal without realizing it. I think this is true. Um, I, I know that I did. Um, maybe I still do on some level, but I'm trying not to. <laughs> but when I got married, I think that I did. Um, can you uh, change the slide? Yeah. The scholarship on the subject, however, is not so blithe about soulmate marriage. Um, Johns Hopkins professor Andrew Cherlin, who's a, a leading sociologist of marriage, argues that the 20th century has been the locus of a great shift in thinking about marriage. From a predominantly institutional model in the early 20th century to the soulmate model uh, of marriage, which is in fully enforced, um, he argues, by the mid-1970s, the institutional model, sort of the old, old thing that marriage was, emphasized permanence, fidelity, and distinct roles for men and women in marriage. It's not exciting, right? This is the old marriage. The soulmate mar model instead conceives of marriage largely as an instrument of emotional and romantic satisfaction. Though Churlin himself would want to say that the new understanding of, of love or feeling in love as the defining basis for marriage seems to be a good development. I mean, who wants to say? <laughs> Who wouldn't to say that marriage should be about love and romance? Um, Sherlin demonstrates that this shift appears to introduce a crack into the foundation of marriage that perhaps marriage couldn't sustain, placing then in jeopardy all the goods that should arise from marriage. So how does this work, according to Sherlin? Um, can you change the slide? So Sherlin says, uh, no one seemed to consider the possibility that once emotional and sexual satisfaction became a central focus of marriage, it might be difficult to limit it to marriage. 
emotional and sexual satisfaction. So let's look at this closely. It's a really stunning insight. According to Sherlin's research, the shift in thinking about marriage occurred around the mid-century, 50s and 60s, and that prior to this shift, and this can be documented by looking at actually really old self-reports of mate preferences, uh, people looked for character-related qualities in the prospective marriage partner. After the shift, people instead reported qualities related to a sense of being a good match or including mutual attraction. When I say character things, I mean, you know, suppose you're stuck on a desert island and you think you'll never get off with this other person. Like, who do you pick? You pick, you know, somebody who's really handy, somebody who is trustworthy, you know. I mean, you're probably not thinking too hard about the emotional satisfaction. You're never going to get off this island. Um, but this starts to change. So these character-related uh, these characters start to sink in, in self-reports of what people are looking for in a spouse. Though qualities of fine character are likely to sustain and be sustained by marriage, qualities of mutual attraction, we all know this, are likely to change and fluctuate. Um, I hope there aren't like really like engaged couples here or really young couples. Because I always feel like a little bit of a downer here. <laughs> it's going to fluctuate, I promise. <laughs> it's like, oh no. All right, can we have the next one? They are going to fluctuate. So in fact, um, you know, just not, a few, not that long later, Governor Sanford announced on Facebook five years after that that he and his Argentine soulmate were calling it quits. Cherlin's point, right, is that when being in love becomes the focus of marriage and the shared conception for its goodness, people begin to think that the being in love is what they were up to in the first place rather than the marriage itself. One more. One thinks of St. Augustine's famous remark, criticizing himself as a young man. He said, I was not in love, but I was in love with being in love. And people felt justified, Sherlin argues, in looking for other paths to being in love. Because if that's what it's about, well, marriage isn't very suitable for that. Institutional marriage, he says, it was replaced with the practice of serial monogamy. Strings of monogamous sexual unions, many preceding marriage, and others coming after marriage like Governor Sanford's. The serial unions constitute a pursuit of being in love instead of a pursuit of other traditional goods such as loyalty, fidelity, stability, and the procreation and education of children. It's not hard to see why this soulmate thing arrives at the same time as the era of no-fault divorce. Rising divorce rates and then, of course, unprecedented levels of family instability. The soulmate model of marriage in this sense, appears to be undermining marriage as an institution. And if this is true, it's undermining all of the personal and social goods that depend upon marriage. Now, I've been intentionally tough on notions of romantic marriage in order to highlight a social transition that has been documented by scholars on both the left and the right. And of course, I don't want to say there's no place for romance in marriage. But I do want to insist that for most of human history, Cultures have placed romantic associations in a different category from marriage. Marriage has typically been conceived of as a strong institutions with norms and expectations that take priority over the ebb and flow of feelings of individuals, and rightly so, for the sake of, for the sake of children. A very good question to ask, if you wanted to ask a question, is whether a romantic conception of marriage could be rescued given these difficulties. Uh, I do actually think the answer is definitely yes, but only with certain provisions or conditions, right? So I'll leave this as a teaser for later if we get to questions. So I'm going to move on to the myth of the good divorce. 
Um, so this is, uh, this is the second misconception. This is the idea that children in the age of divorce are, um, and the age of soulmate marriage are doing all right. The kids are all right. Um, can we do another one? Thank you. Okay. Um, about seven years ago, um, controversial research by Mark Regneris, who's here, a professor of sociology, um, Paul Sellens and my co-authors, Joe Price and Doug Allen, um, and myself, uh, showed that children are substantially less likely to flourish when they grow up in non-traditional families, such as same-sex households. That research um, has been, no surprise to you, generally not well received, <laughs> with lots of letters of protest, accusations of bigotry, and attempts at even forcing people from teaching positions. But all of the fury was, I think, a little bit misplaced. And here's the reason. Um, can we have the next one? We had plenty of reason long before the work of scholars looking at um, same-sex marriages and same-sex households to suspect that children would not fare well in such arrangements. So here I want to introduce um, a wonderful book, if you haven't come across it ever, the work of academic psychologist and therapist Judith Wallerstein, who conducted the only, to my knowledge, 25-year follow-up study of adult children of divorced parents. Children entered the study in the early 1970s, were interviewed into the mid-1990s. The results of the study surprised everyone, including the author herself. She summarizes her findings by, out, by outlining two cherished myths, and I'm here to bring up the myths, about divorce that appear inconsistent with the evidence. The first myth is that the, in, the interests of parents are fully aligned with the interests of children. And by interest now, I don't mean something like, you know, deep, considered interests in the eyes of God, but I mean sort of like your short-term feeling of well-being, okay, your short-term feeling of well-being, that those interests and the short-term feeling of well-being of your children are not always aligned. Um, so put simply, that kids are better off if their parents are better off, but this is what was said for like a long time, certainly, so still often said. Um, she found in, in contradiction and consistent with hundreds of short-term and cross-sectional studies that children after divorce do not, on the whole, look happier, healthier, or more well-adjusted, even if one or both parents are happier. She states, most adults cannot fathom a child's worldview and how children think. The problem is they think that they do. Indeed, many adults trapped in unhappy marriages would be surprised to learn that their children are relatively content. It's very interesting, right? They don't care if mom and dad sleep in different beds tonight, as long as the family is together. Another one. The second myth that Wallerstein refutes is the idea that divorce is a temporary crisis that exerts its most harmful effects on parents and children at the time of a breakup. In reality, she finds that while there is indeed anger and upheaval at the time of the crisis, it's the many years of living in a post-divorce or remarried family that seem to weigh most heavily kind of lifetime, accumulated lifetime of feeling sad, angry, and lonely, trying to make sense out of who you are when the relationship that produced you doesn't make any sense. This takes an immense emotional and psychological toll. It's exhausting, depressing, and burdening, and this bears itself out long into the adult lives of children of divorce. I would know. My own parents divorced well into my adulthood. And we have one more. Um, there we go. Oh, that, yeah, that was just to show you the, the, the uh, rising rates of divorce. 
Uh, she sums it up this way. A central finding in my research, she says, is that children identify not only with their mother and their father as separate individuals, but with the relationship between them, which is amazing, right? Because the relationship between them is tra it's transcendent. It's, it's immaterial. It can't, you, can't find, you can't point to it, right? Um, I mean, my father is fond of saying, well, why can't, why can't we just have a relationship, like just you and me, like we can have this thing. And, I mean, we, we can try, right? But it's not as good. It's not the same. Um, can we have the next one? Um, this should be a graph. Yeah, there we go. So this is a, just some, uh, a, an image on the percentage of children living with two married parents. So we have to admit, I guess I'd put it this way, a kind of terrible paradox. No prior generation um, of parents has invested so much financially into the well-being of children, yet at the same time, children have never faced a higher likelihood of growing up without their two natural parents. More. Wallerstein says, but what about the children? She says, in our rush to improve the lives of adults, we assumed that the children's lives would improve as well. We made radical changes in the family without realizing how it would change the experience of growing up. We embarked, in reality, on a giant social experiment without any idea about how the next generation would be affected. The myths that continue to guide our divorce policies and politics today stem directly from these attitudes. If she is right, Wallerstein is right, then simple old-fashioned divorce, right? Old-fashioned divorce, which, you know, didn't start yesterday, is the main marriage crisis, not same-sex marriage. And how a civilized society handles itself in this regard says a lot about the well-being and happiness of our children. Consider in this light that Christians of various denominations, I mean, these amazing multiple church, Christian churches right here, I think it's very impressive to walk up the hill there. But consider in this light that Christians of different denominations do not agree. All disciples of Jesus Christ do not agree about whether and when a divorce can be justified. To me, setting the question straight among believers ought to be of primary importance. Settling the question in law and policy will follow more easily if there is some unity among believers. Um, one more. If you, curiously, if you read through all, there are many, of the encyclical letters of Pope Leo XIII, especially the ones coming before Rerum Novarum, people figure it all started with Rerum Novarum, um, you will find a steady and emphatic plea. All right, does everybody know? Pope Leo XIII is, you know, 130 years ago. Um, you know, you can really, we could go back more like 140 years. You will find in all of his letters a very steady and emphatic plea for the nations of Europe, but also of the world, to resist the acceptance and spread of divorce. This was like people were agitating for it all over Europe in the really starting in the 1850s and the 60s. Leo went so far as to say that a culture of divorce would lead to a, a loss of national wealth and a society given over to lust and passion. When the church argues against divorce, she isn't making, and she doesn't think of herself as making, a mere kind of moral argument about what is bad for souls. She is, but it's much bigger than that. She's making at the same time an argument about what is good for health, wealth, happiness, and the integrity of society, a view that is, I believe, substantiated by these macro-level findings about the family in American society. The third myth is also a paradox. Uh, it's been published so under that title. Um, the women's movement didn't make women happier, and that's a bit, a bit of a, uh, a, there we go, that's great. Um, 
this is a great story about a 2009 paper in which two um, Harvard economists that I know from graduate school, Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers, examined self-reports of happiness by gender across a wide number of micro-level data sets. And they found, um, as you can see here, that since um, 1970, there has been a decline in women's overall self-reported happiness. More than this, there's been a subtle reversal in the so-called happiness gap, where in 1970, women reported being slightly more happy than men, and now men report being more happy than women. They called this the paradox of declining female happiness. There are several different scholarly explanations of what's going on, and there is no sort of commonly accepted explanation or, or you know, commonly accepted reason yet to date among scholars. However, as Stevenson and Wolfers point out, there are really only three logical possibilities, and I'm just pulling this out of their paper. First, an aggregate change affecting women more than men. Uh, second, a change in the way that people understand the question about happiness, which they go through and argue it's not likely. Um, these happiness surveys, by the way, are not as bad as you might think that they are. <laughs> That's a whole other topic. Uh, it's really not as bad as it sounds. Um, and third, they say, it could be a change in reference point for women. So for technical reasons, they dismiss uh, numbers two and three as unlikely. A change in reference point for women would basically mean that women expected to be better off and then didn't find themselves better off, and so they're kind of disappointed. And I think they just sort of thought that's crazy. Like, it's crazy that women are now reporting lower levels of happiness because they expected things to change. Um, so they dismiss number three, they dismiss number two for technical reasons based on how we do these surveys. And the first category is left in aggregate change affecting women more than men. They point out, the authors point out, that the most obvious change of this nature is the cluster of things which belong to the women's movement. And that therein lies the paradox, since we expected that the women's movement made women better off. So many intriguing studies are now underway looking at kind of what went wrong, like what did the women's movement get wrong? Um, there's a pair of researchers in, in Israel looking at the way in which um, religious practice changes may have affected women more than men. Um, there's certainly some people looking at reproductive dynamics um, and educational labor market practices. And whatever, we, whatever sense we make out of this in the end, it's a good reminder that not all change is good change and that we have not always lived as we live now. Authentic human flourishing ought to be the mark and the measure of social progress. We'll need more research, I would say, to settle this one. I don't, I don't have a definitive answer for you. I have hunches. But consider this collection of articles chosen from um, the last couple of years. Um, right, so I don't know how many I have. Uh, maybe this one is fine. So women did everything right, then work got greedy. How Americans uh, upset, yeah, work-life conflict doesn't stop after maternity leave. The first article um, talks about how the American economy now demands such total commitment, answering emails at all hours of the day, huge inflexible and long work weeks for those with the best educations, that even though women have steadily increased their educational attainment, they have just as steadily been able to, to, unable to use their advanced degrees in ways that make for a meaningful combination, like a livable combination of work and home life. Um, and the second article, this one, highlights the ways in which a hyper-focus on paid maternity leave 
causes us to miss the point about the ways in which women need and want to be at home during later critical child development years, which don't end at six to eight weeks, right? The, the, the conflicts and the difficulties don't go away, right? <laughs> yeah, someone's laughing. I mean, we've all been there. So simply put, it's really hard to meet your own standards at home and also meet someone else's standards at work. And all of this stress and hardness is probably contributing to a little bit to this decline in happiness. This is my, my biggest sort of hunch, I think. Um, but it's also contributing to the following odd fact, which I'll give you one last sort of teaser. Um, how big is the fertility gap in America? Women in America have fewer children than they intend to have. And not only here, but all over the Western world. And so let that sink in, that all of this reproductive control, but somehow women don't feel like they can manage to have the second child that they say they want to have. So that's, I think, sobering. We should grieve over that, that there is a fertility gap. Um, where women say that they wanted three, they have two. Where they say they wanted two, they have one. And many women who wanted to have at least one have none. So what's going on there? Um, I have another interesting finding. Um, this is an older paper by a, a demographer by the name of Hans-Peter Kohler. And he found that babies contribute vastly more to women's happiness than to men's happiness. And this this paper uses actually the total gold standard for happiness research, which is looking at monozygotic twin data. So you only look at variation produced by uh, different choices in life, but everything in the individuals that are reporting something about their happiness or their well-being, anything that's genetically endowed is fixed between the comparison groups. It's really the gold standard. Um, and in this paper, he found that uh, essentially that having eight, you know, having one child is a, is a tremendous extra boost to the happiness of women um, in partnerships. Uh, for the men in those partnerships, their happiness was already maxed out by being in the partnership. <laughs> so it's not, it's not to say that men don't enjoy babies. It is to say that um, all of the, that there's extra variation. There's like an extra boost that women, so men are very, very delighted to be in relationships. Uh, as are women, but that women get this extra boost. And we know there's hormonal reasons for this. There's all kinds of reasons for this. Um, but if, if women are not able to achieve that extra baby that they wanted, because work and life balance is so difficult, and, happen and, the, and their happiness depends more than men's on the babies. I mean, you can sort of see the argument. I'm not making it in a scholarly way here, but I'm suggesting this. Um, OK, next slide. There's more work to be done examining these pathways, but we have to let ourselves ask hard questions that challenge some of the progressive doctrines. When, uh, a couple of years ago, I tweeted um, this tweet on the left. I'm not really much of a tweeter, guys, so don't, like, don't go sign up to follow me. I'm not, in fact, it's because of this I can't tweet very often. Um, I'm afraid that I'll go to bed and wake up in the morning and do something bad. Um, when I tweeted this response to the president of France, Hundreds of thousands of college-educated women around the world, proud of their big families, uh, followed after me and tweeted other post, other pictures of their families. The president of France said that, you know, more or less, if you were really, really well-educated, you wouldn't have a huge family. And so the way to, like, reduce fertility in Africa was to get more women educated. Now, that's an interesting statement, and we could talk about it, but it, had, it has huge problems, and I just thought that was ridiculous. So I didn't really respond as much as I just tweeted a picture of being well-educated and having a lot of kids, but like hundreds of thousands of people did this after me. So 
it was one of the coolest things ever. There's all kinds of, you can find these still now. I think I have a few more, yeah. So these, these came from all over the world, these pictures of people. So, so clearly people, uh, people, I hit a nerve. All right, myth number four. Uh, wait, you can go back. That one, this was from Scotland, and they, they sent their postcard up um, all in their Scottish plaids, which I thought was really cute. There's, <laughs> you can still find them if you look for the, the hashtag. Um, and like the, the cat, anyway, all right. Myth number four, next slide. Okay, um, this, is, um, this is about um, coming apart. So these last two myths uh, are where things start to get a little bit epic, right? Where I'm gonna start to connect these more micro level things to a bigger narrative. I'm gonna start with a book that I do recommend to all of you. Um, in fact, all of the books that I'm gonna mention are really worth reading. Um, this is the 2012 book, Coming Apart, by American sociologist Charles Murray. Um, you know, Murray's a bad word, depending on where you go, and that's okay. Um, <laughs> I kind of think you should read pieces of work and take them at, the, at their face value. In this particular book, Murray pointed out that marriage rates are down since 1960, but they're not equally down across socioeconomic groups. The marriage rate is down 11 percentage points since 1960 for upper-middle-class Americans, um, essentially college-educated Americans, but among working-class Americans, it's down 36 percentage points. Like a really, really big difference, right? So this isn't just sort of like these trends in family are not happening to all of us in the same way. So looking only at patterns among white Americans in order to kind of, you know, to essentially abstract from the idea that there's somehow racial and ethnic confounders, he just looks at patterns among white Americans. Murray goes on to identify um, the, um, which one is this? Uh, yeah, so this is um, percentage of uh, divorced or separated and the bottom black, darker points are the college educated Americans and this like line that's going up into infinity is like everybody else, the, you know. Um, so looking at this, he concludes that America has never been more uh, divided than it is today. Um, in these various areas, uh, religiosity, values, habits, recreate, like what we watch on TV. Um, but he says that those divisions correlate very deeply with patterns of family formation. He says, while there's always been rich and poor, um, actually this is, uh, wait, wait, just, oh, yeah, no, this is fine, this is fine, leave this. Um, where there's always been rich and poor in America, he argues, in the past, rich and poor worked and formed families in the same ways but today not so much. So Murray's work is particularly compelling taken together with this slide, which is uh, from the work of a demographer by the name of Ron Lestaga and also his colleague Dick Vandika. I'm sure I'm butchering their names, um, and their colleagues, who identified a new cluster of demographic behaviors associated with the decline in marriage rates. So, you know, declining marriage, but they, they looked at the demography and they said, Every time we see these declining marriage rates in the late part of the 20th century, we also see the, the following things. Delayed marriage, so not just these um, divorce rates, we see these delayed marriages, cohabitation as a, as a, as a way to start out in life, um, delay of childbearing, obviously divorce, and very low, very low lifetime fertility. So pronounced were these trends, they argued, that they might even constitute a new demographic phase in the overall transition of the West. In more recent work, they examined trends in these second transition behaviors by state and county in the United States. 
and they happened to look at the correlation with voting patterns in the 2000 and 2004 elections. And this is what you're looking at. What they found was really remarkable. They found that the correlation between voting for Bush and the second transition behaviors was between 0.7 and 0.9. Uh, so it's really high, depending on the factor. And these are ecological correlations, so they're a little higher than regular correlations, but still, these are really high. So this is to say, so what does that mean? This is to say that the districts or the counties or the states with less traditional family behaviors, these list of things that I just mentioned, really low fertility, lots of cohabitation, less traditional family behaviors were also less likely to vote for Bush, and that this relationship was very, very high statistically. The authors stated that, and they, this is their quote, the very strong negative correlation found here between these um, sort of new family forms, we'll say, um, or new patterns of family formation, and the percentage of votes for Bush is to our knowledge one of the highest spatial co correlations between demographic and voting behavior ever documented, like ever anywhere. Um, let's see, so this is, okay. So you can do like go back and then forward again. So this is the percentage of vote for George W. Bush in the presidential elections. Obviously, like to get your bearings, you can look at Utah, right? <laughs> like all Republicans. And you can see um, Texas in the middle of the country. And then skip to the next slide. Oh no, sorry, go back. This one, okay. So this is the pattern of the second demographic transition. So more blue means you're doing more of those new family formations. Um, obviously, again, look at Utah. Um, and so, you know, it's pretty close. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, interesting variation, but that's what we're seeing. So a keen observer would next ask anybody with a little training in social science or statistics at all, would ask whether these correlations that they saw are merely correlative with no causal weight, right? On this point, the authors make a number of statistical tests, including introducing a variety of control variables to do what a responsible social scientist does, try to make the correlation go away, right? So if we bring enough confounders in here, uh, you know, we can make this correlation go away. And they say, and this is their quote, the outcome of these tests is that the uh, correlation between the demographic variables and the voting for Bush cannot be considered as spurious or as the mere outcome of the operation of some causal determinants that we used, the control variables simply fail to reduce the zero-order correla correlation coefficients to a significant extent to warrant such a conclusion. And since the demographic picture was unfolding well before the 2000 and 2004 elections, it leaves us with no alternative other than temporarily accepting the hypothesis that the spatial pattern of these new family formation patterns in the United States was a non-redundant co-determinant of the red, purple, and blue voting patterns at the level of the states. And they go on and confirm this at the level of the counties. It's, it's a, there's a whole number of papers. They're all online. You can go find them. In more simple terms, the scholars are telling us that the further a state or county had retreated from traditional patterns of family formation, more divorce, more cohabitation, fewer children, the more likely was it was to vote for a politically liberal candidate. Further, since these demographic patterns existed and were established long before the elections themselves, we should interpret the causality as running from family life to political life. So the fourth myth that American society is divided along political lines, I'd like to say that that's a myth. We, you hear this all the time. We're deeply politically divided. Um, 
doesn't seem to me to get it right. America is divided along family lines, and these differences lead to enormous public consequences. Family matters are not really that private, after all. Um, what's the next one? Okay, here's just a couple of quotes for you. What we should take away from this work that I just showed you, but these, I'm arguing that the splits in American family life are really familial rather than political. Um, what we should take away from this is not entirely clear, but on a first pass, we might say that the empirical evidence confirms the idea often articulated in the social teaching of the church that the family is the basic cell of society. Whatever our political views, we all like to believe that they arise from kind of pure first principles. I don't dispute this. However, it is worth asking how it is that we come to find certain first principles more compelling than others. At the same time, we might also ask why it is that some public debates never reach resolution through recent dialogue. Is the family perhaps the source of those reasons of the heart of which Pascal said reason knows nothing? And this brings us around to the last and maybe most pervasive myth about the family, that strong families perpetuate inequality. Before unpacking this, I want to tell you first about the work of economist Raj Chetty and his colleagues on a groundbreaking study of income mobility in the United States. This was funded by the Russell Sage Foundation. The study aimed to get a better idea of whether the American dream is still a reality or not. I can't tell you how many times as an economist I, I, I watch for journalistic reporting on the American dream. Um, and it's typically reported that the American dream is dead and there's no more upward mobility. This is how mobility, uh, the dream is ten, tends to be defined as sort of doing better than your parents. It's like a, a stronghold of American life. I found it in my son's economics textbook about three days ago, which is really funny. He's a college student and he, he sent me a screenshot. He said, is this right? It literally says like the American dream is no longer a thing. <laughs> I was like, hmm, <laughs> to talk to your teacher. In any case, it's very commonly reported that the American dream is dead. Okay, does anyone still move up the economic ladder? Um, so this is a map uh, here of absolute upward mobility Economists used to call income data on all U.S., uh, sorry, th these economists used income data on all U.S. children born between 1980, 1980 and 1982. That's probably not too many people in this room. Um, it's a little bit after I was born. And they discovered, to the great surprise of many of these academics and policymakers, that there is still economic mobility in the, in the United States. But mobility is not random. No, we shouldn't have expected it was, right? It's not randomly distributed. Like, you just have an equal shot. Whoever you are, we'll pluck you out of the, the basket, um, and we'll just see if you move up. So, no. In fact, it was highly correlated with five factors um, uh, that are correlated. So, uh, segregation in communities, school quality, social capital, um, income inequality in your community, I may have had this someplace, and family structure. And this is a quote from their paper, the strongest predictor of those five of upward mobility are measures of family structure, such as the fraction of single parents in an area where you live. As with race, parents' marital status does not matter purely through its effects in the individual level. So this is a very powerful and important point that they make. So it's not merely that if you're born into a broken family or you at some point experience the loss of one or both of your parents um, as, a, as a family unit, 
um, that you will have a harder time moving up the ladder, but that if you live in a place where lots of other people around you suffer the same kinds of um, family instability, that you will then also, even if your own family is intact, you will suffer that same kind of... Um, so they say children of married parents, married parents also have higher rates of upward mobility if they live in communities with fewer single parents. So what is going on here? To help understand, I'd like to mention the work of, of this guy, uh, who's a Nobel laureate um, economic historian, Robert Fogel, who advanced the following thesis. In the past, he said, and I'm summarizing this book, which is w wonderful, but extremely thick and dense. Um, in the past, he said, economic growth and access to channels of production used to depend more on material capital than it does now. So, you know, if you had a tool, you could go out and get hired on a work site, right? So you need, a, you need some kind of capital. Today, he argues that access to productive enterprise depends more upon intangible sort of, he called it spiritual capital. Um, and by that, he meant the human virtues and the habits that contribute to the capacity for work and self-realization. Fogel argued that it isn't primarily vague market forces or social injustice that alienates people from their capacity to succeed, but rather the lack of certain virtues that distances people from making use of the gifts of their own talents. You can find essentially the same argument in J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. He, he walks you through something similar to that. Uh, but since virtues and habits are born in the family, it would seem that the family becomes the key to participating in the economy. Putting the work of Chetty and Fogel together, we get the possibility of formulating a conclusion in the following form, that the natural family is a precondition for the great egalitarian project, the project in which everyone has an equal opportunity to rise up. But there's an old stubborn myth, which maybe you remember, which emerges over and over again, the myth which says that families actually are the cause of inequality. Marxist socialist revolutionaries of all stripes, as well as many great political thinkers, have pursued the idea that society should strive as much as possible to eliminate inequalities that result from the lottery of your birth. This would entail some kinds of social engineering, perhaps to remove advantages, advantages to remove them, that come from family name or property and that might arise from education in the home, right? Wealthy families or highly educated families would be looked at with suspicion as a real source of discord in society. Uh, did I bring, I did bring the, the Marx quote. Um, the claptrap, he says, about the family and education, about the hallowed correlation of parents and child becomes all the more disgusting the more by the action of modern industry, all the family ties among the proletarians are torn asunder and their children transformed into simple artifices of commerce and instruments of labor. Upon examination, it's certainly true that these, let's call them socialist and quasi-socialist philosophies aim at a kind of equality. Everyone gets the same start in life. Nobody gets to start ahead. But this is a kind of equality that's achieved by a leveling down, by removing advantages of some in order to even the playing field. But, I, uh, but Fogel and I think Chetty's findings support, I think, a different view of the relationship between the family and society. On this view, the modern economy and social structures are themselves the, uh, naturally productive for those who participate. But there are personal prerequisites or preconditions that can affect one's ability 
to participate. Society might therefore rightly strive to eliminate inequalities in such preconditions so that all members of society might access these engines of economic mobility. So instead of removing the advantages of some, the goal would be to protect and provide preconditions for all so that all have a chance to move up. We could think of this as a kind of equality of leveling up, with, uh, which implies a keenness of ensuring that each child in society has what is needed to run the race. Some such prerequisites would certainly involve material capital, for instance, uh, what's needed for good health, a basic education, enough calories to support growth and development. Western Christian democracies have, in general, for the most part, sought to achieve this kind of leveling up through a variety of various welfare programs, state education, and public health. But Fogel and Chetty's work suggests that other preconditions appear to be generated with statistical regularity within the natural family. These would include intangible attributes of character, psychology, and personal disposition. And as Fogel points out, unlike material inequalities, we simply can't redistribute intangible attributes of character. So it's left to us now to investigate these facts and figure out just what it is that families generate or preserve in us that makes mobility and economic success so much more likely and to figure out how we can extend the blessings of, we'll call it spiritual capital, upon those who don't have them. Curiously enough, um, Dr. Fogel, although he was a fairly unreligious Jew, he often argued that it would be the task of churches and of religious men and women to undertake the kind of large, massive mentoring programs that would be needed to correct the most important inequality. He thought this was the most important inequality of today. He thought there was no way you could even imagine anything else doing this work except like, you know, volunteer armies of religious people who would go out and help to mentor young people who didn't have what they needed to be successful. Um, so this concludes uh, my presentation about the myths, myths about the family in America. There's obviously lots we could discuss, but I wanna leave the floor open for your questions. We're just shocked into silence. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, I, I have a question about the, um, I guess, Wolper's study. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did they cancel out the idea that the reference points for happiness have changed? Um, I'll just say this as I, I used to be really into these happiness studies yeah, and yeah. you'd get these very crazy results where you'd have like Guatemala listed as the happiest country in the world and then in the same study they asked people, you know, do you feel safe? And all those people that said they were very happy, they felt they felt very unsafe. They don't feel safe. Um, yeah. So you got all sorts of, you know, crazy um, results all over the place because, you know, I guess most people in the West would, you know, safety is a prerequisite for happiness. Yeah, we would say that, right? Yeah. Um, it might not be, but we would say that, I agree. Um, yeah, so how did they cancel out the third thing? My recollection, and I don't have it with me and it's been a while since I looked at it. My recollection is it was, it was probably brushed out of hand a little too quickly. They, they seemed to laugh at the idea that women were kind of spoiled. The, I mean, the, the idea is that the reference point changes. The idea is women are largely better off than in the past, but they're simply not, they're, they simply don't think they have enough yet. 
So their lives have vastly improved, but they now think that they're worse off because the reference point has changed. Right? So they're now comparing themselves to some you know, higher level of social attainment. And they basically just said, we don't think women are like this. <laughs> so that's not a very scientific answer for you. I mean, that's, they don't give a very scientific answer. It's, it seems more like a um, psychological question put into an economics paper. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, you know, that happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, certainly not the last word. I mean, there's a lot of curious things in the happiness research. I just finished reading a new volume of work on the measurement of well-being and happiness, and um, one that has just come out of the Human Flourishing Project at Harvard, and it's a good volume. I didn't expect it to be as good as it was, or it is, as it is. Uh, if you're interested in it, it's about 560 pages. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I think those things are interesting. They're uh, not perfect, but um, I was convinced that they're better than I might have thought. Thank you so much for your talk, Professor Bracolic. Um I, I have a question, just it's kind of a general question. Yeah. Um, my sense in, and you alluded to this at the beginning about, you know, the, or somewhere in the talk about the, you know, that reason alone or facts and, and mm -hmm. logic don't convince here. Yeah. I think a frustration I have sometimes is is in so many of these areas of social science, the truth really is clear, mm. and there are really good studies, yeah. but there are other studies that are just absolutely poor yeah. from any any statistical uh, yeah. you know standard, and yet are just kind of passed around as if this is the truth, yeah. and so people just kind of choose their truth, which of course is kind of a problem society-wide, but can you just speak to that at all? I mean, it seems like no matter how good the data are that we have, it just kind of doesn't convince people because they can always say, well, that study is biased, and you know, well, we have another one that shows yeah. something different. Right, yeah. Uh, no, it's a big problem, uh, what you're saying. Uh, I mean, for me, um, I wanna say that when I was I was working at NIH when I was, you know, when I was little, and I was probably the same height that I am now, but I felt little, uh, you know, and then in my college years when I was working and I, you know, I, I got into economics in part, my AIDS research in high school had taken me to do a lot of work looking at public health in Africa and public health in other parts of the world, and, you know, if you really, you know, I, these things are really distressing, you know, places where there's really endemic um, traps of poverty, traps of disease, traps of immobility, these things are really depressing and, and distressing. And so um, I moved from public health research into economics in college because I thought, well, this is gonna be a lot more interesting uh, because economic growth has certainly, like if we just look at the broad correlations over the last couple of hundred years, has tremendous more potential to eliminate these poverty traps that people get into. So I thought, well, this is really interesting. But there was another piece of this, which was that um, the conversation, certainly when I was working at NIH in the early 1990s, was, um, you know, this was still really not, we were still really worried about overpopulation. Uh, many people were still, I mean, I think there are still people worried about this, but like, come on, the facts haven't convinced them. Um, and so because of that, I mean, you, it was not uncommon to hear, you know, normal scholars, normal researchers, meaning like credentialed people wandering through the halls of NIH say, you know, you know, we all know, like, it would be like whispered, it would be like, well, you know, it's really, it's not really such a bad thing that AIDS is in Africa because they really have too many people and it's really kind of, I mean, this was not an uncommon sentiment to hear. And I was like blown away. I thought, okay, this is terrible. So there was a big piece of me that wondered, well, you know, do we have to, you know, do, do, do Western countries have to be exporting, you know, programs of sterilization? 
uh, for there to be growth. I mean, I had all these questions, and I thought there's got to be answers to these things. Um, but that was my good old days when I thought that, you know, if we just found the right answers, that would convince everybody. Um, and so, you know, I guess I'm kind of sharing your frustration, but saying that um, as I've spent more time as a, as a, as a scientist, um, I've become a lot more sober. And it, and it is part of the reason, meaning sober that um, I don't think that people's minds are changed very often by pure reason, a pure reasonability of things. Which is why when, um, you know, there's that great passage from Pope Benedict where he says that the great, the great influencers of people's hearts is, is really um, art and the lives of the saints. And if we extend that out a little bit, I mean, it's like saying, look, personal witness is really going to be the thing at the end of the day. Um, and that's made me more sober. And it really, part of that now caused me to stop and think, well, did I get it? Like, is my life a lie? Like, what did I do? What am I doing this for? You know, in some sense, I myself, I mean, I offered this corrective for myself, looking back at myself. I thought that if we just discovered the truth about certain things, we could, we could make everything better. And then you have to become sober and you have to say, well, is the truth worth pursuing, even though it may not make things better? And the answer has to be yes, of course the truth is worth pursuing, right? Because God, who is truth, and the truth is not an instrumental good, right? But we do, we are accustomed to thinking of the truth as if it's an instrumental good. It's good for something else, right? It's good to make things better. It's good for me to feel good that I've helped something. Um, and those are all good things, but they're the wrong reason to pursue truth. So truth is always worth pursuing. Um, because the truth is God, and God is not instrumental. Um, and that's a really hard thing for us, because we just, we, don't, we live so far away from that reality. So this, for me, it's been like that sort of journey and corrective. Um, and then you sort of peel back the curtain a little bit, and you start to think like, well, you know, am I, am I really in this for the right reasons, you know? Um, but then you can have a lot of optimism, you know, because listen, um, we enjoyed this time together. We, we are enjoying this time together. We are taking a look at how interesting it is that, um, I mean, just this fact that children who are in unhappy marriages can be relatively happy. Um, and it's just kind of breathtaking, like that you can, that the stability that a, a healthy marriage offers to children, you know, some cultures use that language of the tree, um, but to contemplate that the way that, um, God has given us these ways of living together in community which really have power. <laughs> they have tremendous power. Of course, they have power to hurt, but they have tremendous power to heal as well. Um, and I've, I've been in the position to watch the way in which healthy families can, in fact, provide healing for, for people who don't have healthy families. It happens over and over and over. And it's really, it's, for me, it's magnificent. And it's, such a, it's a path to contemplation of God. So I share your frustration, but I think it's still worth doing. And, um, but we may not win the fight um, for any of us, um, but that's okay. <laughs> we know in the end <laughs> it'll be all right. Yeah. Kevin. Our, our, yeah. Uh, so I want to ask about the, um, <clears throat> the not ha the having fewer kids than we want. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, because I think that's really important, yeah, um, and right. actually offers a way forward, right? Because if yeah. we can just get the obstacles out of the way, yeah, then we'll actually start to address a lot of what you say there. And I've seen some of the research that indicates some of the 
um, retarding effects of things like uh, car seats, right? Because yes. you have to buy that yes. next larger vehicle. Right. But I read that and think, okay, there's some truth to there, but come on, people aren't really not having that third kid because of car seats. Right. So what are we choosing instead of that third kid? Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Well, I think this. Um, I think this is largely a story about. Well, it's 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 complicated, but I think it's largely a story about about time. Um, President Macron was not wrong. This is, if you just look at the big correlations, basically the more education women get, uh, the fewer children they have. And uh, you know, I think that story is interesting. But, but listen, I mean, if you go to school and you're not married, most people it's hard to be married and in school. If you go to school for you know, 12 years plus another four years, plus maybe do some graduate work, you know, you know, it's like you're well into your 20s before you think you're gonna start to get married. That just merely delaying marriage for many people is the, is the difference, right? So because our fertilities are not like uniform over our lifetimes, you know, so we've, we've, we've pushed age of marriage for most people into the late 20s. Um, that can mean the difference. A lot of people are really fertile when they're 19 and not so much when they're 29 which is shocking for people because they sort of, we sort of imagine like, oh, it's just the same until you're 41. And we don't really know. So th there's many, many people who may have trouble conceiving at 29 uh, who would have been just totally fertile at 19. But we don't know because there's no such thing as like a normally like respectable marriage when you're 19 anymore. You know, and, and that's complicated and I'm not, but I'm not sure it's so good. <laughs> so, so there's that. So part of it's just a competition of time, right? So we have inserted into the, adult reproductive lives of women, many, many other things worth doing. And so at some point, just a kind of crowding out. Um, so that's a large piece of it. I do think the balancing work and family thing is a very difficult thing. Um, it's really, it's, it's so difficult to walk away from a six-week-old baby that many people would rather not have another baby than do that again. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> it's like there's a silent scream that goes up from the heart of anybody that has just gone through that, and then you gotta put that baby back in wherever. And, and it's not just that you leave the baby behind, it changes the bond. You know, like you're still like bleeding and dripping milk. It's so unpleasant. I can't tell you how awful it is. You know, and it's like, well, like I'm glad that's behind me. Do I really wanna do that again? I think that has a lot of influence. Not to mention the difficulty, I mean, you know, how many times, like every, what, three years, there's a terrible news story about some kid that gets left in a car and dies. And it's always a case where, like, the kid gets left in the car because there's some shuttling of school schedules between the two parents. I mean, this is a really difficult way to live. It's, it's really difficult. What women are doing who are balancing work and family, which isn't to say, I mean, I work, I balance it. I'm not here to criticize anyone who's doing it. Many people have absolutely no choice given the way the economics are right now. But that is just not pleasant. So I think that's a lot of it. I think that's a lot of it. You get through it once and you go, well, that was horrible. Well, maybe I could get myself through it a second time for the sake of the boy, right? I had the girl, I wanna have the boy, right? And then like by that point, you're like, boy, that is so it, I'm definitely done. Like, and then they're, you know, like your OB is standing over you, like they've, like they're cutting the cord of the umbilical, like you, you, you like just are still in labor. They're like, so do you want your tubes tied now? You know, and they're like, just give it to me, right? Because like, that's not the time to ask. All of the, all of the social scripts around how we organize our lives 
don't make it easy to consider that next baby. So fine, considered abstractly, I wanted three, but I ended up with two. And they're not gonna like march on Washington over that. They don't feel like they're miserable. But they do, this is reflected in surveys. Um, so I think we'd have to change a lot of things to fix that. But nobody even knows it's a problem. Yeah. So, sorry, that was very blunt about what it's like, but, but, um, but you know, anybody who's, you know, anybody who's had a baby and um, tried to make those hard decisions about, you know, having to go back to work. So many jobs are not, I mean, my job, I, in the worst times when I had a baby, when I had to teach or something, I could take my baby to work if I really had to. It wasn't pleasant, but I could do it. But, you know, bus drivers and elementary school teachers and nurses and so many, th and they can't do, they can't take their baby to work. It's just, I think it's really awful. Yeah, I agree that you're definitely onto something there. I think that in that analysis somewhere is the answer to why women don't feel happier. You know, yes, I got the advanced degree. Yes, I had the two kids, but at what cost? and I'm supposed to be able to do everything. And I did it all, but it's not yeah. what was said. Yeah. And I don't think that's gonna change in the foreseeable future. <laughs> I'm not here to offer you any sort of policy proposal. I don't think, I mean, um, Singapore was just had a report on their own um, family leave policies and they were concerned about exactly this, that somehow, you know, it, it, it was not working, that although they're ridiculously generous, people still didn't wanna have the second child. And so they were trying to rethink whether there was a way to get around this. Um, in some international data sets, like extending these family leave things actually looks like it has a negative impact on fertility, uh, which, which d wouldn't make sense. But I think the, the main message is sort of like, you can help women have these extended periods of time where they can stay with their baby, but, uh, like, but you can't solve the 18-year problem. Like the 18-year problem is that these things are really crashing into each other. Um, and they're crashing into each other increasingly, especially because of the footprint of our work lives has expanded so much. So like none of us anymore just go to work and come home and it's not, it's not in a little time period and we're like total work, we're working all the time. Um, I don't know, so there's a collision course there which isn't gonna get better quickly. But I, I don't think there's some quick fix, like a better family leave policy that's gonna solve it. Um, I'm, I'm curious if, um there's any data on this, or maybe there's not much um, historical data because this is a lot happening a lot more. Um, but um, I guess single from the beginning families, um, I, I, I know personally, I know it's happening a lot more of women, um, I guess, going to a sperm bank. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how, how that affects the, um, you know, uh, upbringing of, of those children because of, um, yeah, I understand the divorce is traumatic, but mm -hmm. these were, you know, single parent households from the beginning. Yes. I can speak to this briefly, and I wanna preface what I say with something I 
often say, which is that statistics uh, tell us about large-scale patterns. I cannot ever speak to anyone's personal experience. We, we all know people who've been raised in very difficult circumstances and did well and feel happy. And um, So I, I, I won't claim to speak for everybody. But um, we do find that um, children who grow up this way, we now have generation like adults who were, who were born this way um, through artificial technologies or other sorts of things. Um, and they experience a, a different kind of trauma, like a sense of loss. Um, for a while, there was—I mean, there's a book that was written by some, you know, people who who were who were born this way. Um, Anonymous Us was a website that I think is still up. I think um, dedicated to people telling the stories of what it's like to grow up as um, as a child brought into being in that way, purchased from sperm and raised without knowing, intentionally not knowing your biological father. Um, so you can find some of these testimonies. There hasn't been, to my knowledge, any really like big, you know, data project looking at this. But it, we will have enough people it's soon. To, it is a lot bigger now than when this, when the when people's testimonies start, first started coming out. Um, but you hear this. I mean, when you read through a lot of these testimonies, you hear things like, you know, you know, kind of like um, you read those stories about like veterans who lose a leg and in battle, but they sometimes feel like it's still there. You know, that there's a name for that syndrome. It's like that, they, these, these people tend to walk around wondering like, is that stranger that I just said, like I, th I think I saw someone that looked familiar to me, is that my dad? Um, like you know that there's, a, there, you know that there's a, an adult male out there who produced you, but you don't know where he is or how to find him, you never knew him. There's a sense of loss, we'll just say that, that seems to be pretty clear. It's not the same kind of loss of knowing your father and having a, a divorce experience, but it doesn't seem like a great experience. <laughs> so I can say that, I, but I, will, I would direct you to this website called Anonymous Us uh, if you want to dig into some of this more, but that's all I have. Thank you so much. Let's give Professor Bacolic another hand. Yeah. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.